Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Please be with Michelle and help her to feel better and return to us soon. Lord, thank you that she was able to put this lecture together. And I just ask that the truth of your word from this chapter in Romans would touch our hearts and change lives. We love you and we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, I'm reading from Michelle's lecture. So anything good is from Michelle, <laughs> and anything bad can be blamed on me for my presentation. How's that? <laughs> we are often surprised to hear how people rationalize their behavior and justify doing wrong and seem so convinced of their own innocence. Children learn to do this when they are young without even having any lessons on how to do it. Unfaithful spouses justify their affairs, placing a great deal of blame on their spouse's failures. Grown children blame parents for their poor behavior and justify their sin of anger and resentment. Employees blame their bosses or the company they work for for being unfair and justify stealing little desk objects or giving poor quality of work. It seems it is so easy to see the faults of others while failing to deal with the beam or log in our own lives. It is likely that many hearing Paul's message in chapter 1 agreed fully with his assessment of pagan man. We learned last week that even the pagan man who has never heard of Jesus or the Bible is without excuse. They have the light of creation, the internal conscience they choose to suppress, and it is because of this that they fail to worship the one true God. Then God gives them over to do the things they want to do, and that leads to wickedness of every kind. It is a downward sp spiral into sin and darkness. It is easy to see the guilt of a society that has rejected the God of the Bible, but fail to see our own sin and lack of righteousness before a holy God. In reality, there are countless people who are devout in their particular church or religion who live by standards and moral codes they are taught. They have faithfully kept all the religious codes and standards. Such people fail, often fail to see that they are not more righteous than the pagan man in the jungle. It is to this kind of person that Paul now turns his attention in chapter 2. Paul continues to build his case that God is righteous, but all people, pagan or moral, have no righteousness of their own to make them acceptable to God. This chapter proves that the most moral, kind, generous, and devoutly religious person is still as equally guilty and condemned by God as the pagan. The problem is, such people often believe they are in a better standing with God because of the good works they have done. The danger is a failure to see with clarity that no one does enough righteous acts to make them acceptable to a holy God. Everyone stands guilty and condemned before God because no one can live up to his righteous standards. It is often easier for those who have hit rock bottom in their lives to realize they are sinners than for those who have a false confidence that their religious devotion has made them acceptable to God. Such thinking is faulty. 
The pagan person and the devoted religious person are both sinners who fall short of the glory of God. One may be more pleasing to their fellow man, but both fall short of having a righteousness of their own to make them acceptable to God. Paul now puts the moral person on trial. Those who have the thinking that they are okay with God because of their good background and good works. The prosecution will now prove that even these self-righteous people are guilty before a holy God. And in reality, they will be judged just as the pagan, unless there is an, an honest recognition of being a lost sinner. These religious and moral people are often the hardest to convince that they are lost and without hope. Michelle has outlined the chapter, and in verses 1 through 16, she says we see God's perspective on divine judgment. In verses 1 through 5, there is an absolute guarantee of judgment. Talking to the religious Jewish person, Paul says, Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Just like the pagan society that suppresses the truth and has no excuse before God, the same is true for the religious person. They are without excuse. In other words, you know right from wrong. Your conscience, as well as the law of Moses, reveals behavior condemned by God. Such a moral person often feels free to judge the wickedness they see acted out in others, and yet they fail to see their own sins, which are the very things they condemn others for doing. Applying this to all religious people who feel confident that their behavior is proper and superior to lawless sinners, Paul wants them to realize they have a blindness to their own faults. This was the whole issue that Jesus confronted when he spoke to the devout religious Jewish leaders of his day. They did all the right things to appear religious on the outside, yet their hearts still failed to live up to the standards of the law. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus explained that the intent of the law, and just because you don't physically kill a person you are angry with, doesn't mean you are not a murderer. From God's holy perspective, when you hate, you are guilty of murder in your heart. Everyone has hated someone at some time in their lives. So all are guilty of the sin of murder. Jesus also addressed sexual sin by condemning all who have had sexual fantasies about someone. They are guilty of adultery as far as God is concerned. This is the hypocrisy that deceives the hearts of religious people who are able to rationalize behavior contrary to Scripture. God is able to look straight into the heart of every person, and he alone knows what evil and wickedness are hidden in secret thoughts and desires. I recall a TV pre preacher from years ago condemning the sin of Rahab, who was a prostitute, while himself engaging in intimacy with a prostitute. Verse 2. And we know what judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God has the ability to see all, and he will judge according to the truth. Therefore, he will judge the righteous, self-righteous, moral person based on the facts of the truth about them. 
truth often hidden to people. Verse 3, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing that you will escape the judgment of God? Since the pagan person will not escape judgment, are you really so self-deceived that you think he will overlook your indiscretions because you're basically moral and upright? No one trusting in their attempts to live a moral life will escape the judgment of God. The standard isn't other people who do far worse than you do. The standard is perfect obedience to the moral law of God 100% of the time. Because God knows everything about us, are you so foolish to delude yourself that you are good enough as if God doesn't know your true thoughts? The reality is we can't even remember all the evil we have done. All the unkind words spoken in harshness, all of the unkind thoughts about others as you look down on certain people for their looks or their background, God hasn't forgotten. A holy God cannot excuse our sins because they aren't as bad as someone else. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God has been so loving and kind to mankind, providing air to breathe and food to eat and shelter from the elements. Just because he doesn't strike us all down when we sin does not mean he will never judge sin. Theologians call this common grace. The fact that you are well enough to be here have eyes to see so you could drive, have, have a mind to reason so you could answer the questions, you were able to have food for breakfast and know that you will have lunch, this is all common grace from God. God's kindness had been seen in particular by the Jewish people Paul was addressing. They were his chosen people. They were given the law to them were sent the prophets, kings, and ultimately the Messiah. God, in his tolerance and patience, has restrained judgment. The fact that the Jewish people still exist reveals God's kindness and patience. God is not quick to judge wrongs done. You only have to read through the Old Testament to realize the amazing patience of God. Everyone born deserves God's judgment because we all violate his laws. All have lied and could have been struck dead at that moment. God did that with Ananias and Sapphira at the start of the early church to encourage purity in the church. But if we do not repent of our sin, and if we think that God is unfair to judge mankind for sin, we join all the others that despise the goodness of God. The fact that we have lived as long as we have the fact that we have opportunity to be in a place where we can study and learn God's word should lead us to turn from sin and run to Christ for his right forgiveness. Those who fail to repent often misunderstand the goodness of God to mean that there is no judgment for sin. They think somehow upright and moral people will escape judgment. Paul reasons that instead of having a false assurance, what needs to be recognized is God's kindness so that all would run to him for salvation. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
The day of judgment will come. That is guaranteed by God. When a person hardens their spiritual heart, their ultimate destiny is hell. Though people like to joke about being with all of their buddies in the afterlife, or Hollywood makes movies where people return to help their loved ones in this life, this is just make-believe. The person who continues to reject the mercy of God in reality stores up wrath for the day of wrath. Every day that a person rejects Jesus and his goodness to them, they pile up more and more of God's wrath until one day at the great white throne judgment of God, his wrath will burst upon them. It's hard to imagine some type of large empty canyon, like the Grand Canyon, has been used to pile up more and more of God's wrath over our sin and rebellion towards him. Those with wishful thinking try to ease their fears by saying God will overlook sin. Others want nothing to do with a God that has allowed children to suffer or, un or injustice to hurt the innocent. But there is a failure to recognize that all people are born in sin and have rebelled against God by simply living their lives as they see fit. There is a failure to recognize the goodness of God, which should lead people to repent of their sins. This is the message of the gospel. All have failed to obey the holy standards of God. All are guilty, whether they are pagan or devout in their more religious life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to experience the wrath of God in place of sinners like you and me. Have you turned from the sins you are aware of and placed your faith in Christ alone to be forgiven? Or are you trusting the fact that you are a member of a particular church denomination and have followed all the things they say you must do? If your trust is not in Jesus' death alone, then you are adding drops into that large canyon which will one day burst in judgment. How scary to think that people actually are storing up wrath for a future day of judgment. In verses 6 through 16, we see the basis for this judgment. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Throughout all of scripture, we read that God does judge mankind on the basis of our deeds or works. This is not in contradiction to the truth that salvation is by grace through faith, not dependent on any works of our own, which we know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. What Paul is referring to here in Romans 2 is judgment, not salvation. No one is saved by their works. They are only judged by their works. That is because our works reveal our character and indicate if we are someone saved from sin's condemnation or are lost. Paul doesn't start teaching on the righteousness of Christ and how we can experience salvation until chapter 3. However, in Romans 2, Paul is simply establishing that someday mankind will stand before God and God will see by their works if they were true believers or if they were unbelievers. Those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation have been given his righteousness. 
There is a distinct change in their life, and deeds of righteousness flow from out of their life, as verse 7 indicates. The problem is that there is no one who seeks after God, as clearly stated in Romans 3. This is the whole point of the first three chapters, as Paul proves that no one can get to heaven because they are good enough. The only way is the righteousness of Christ. If you could go to heaven based on your good works, then you would have to have 100% perfection. Everyone who is not perfect must come to God based on the merits of Christ and his perfect righteousness, which he gives to sinners who ask. Those who have never been changed in their heart of sin have deeds that flow out as well. These deeds reveal an unrighteous life. Everyone born in this world are those referred to in verse 8. Instead of glorifying God, we are self-absorbed and disobedient to God. Even if you do good deeds that you think are righteous, there is the issue of motives. God sees what and why we do what we do. We deceive our own hearts in order to convince ourselves we must be acceptable to God because of what we have done for him. In verses 9 through 11, the truth of Scripture tells us there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Again, Scripture makes it clear that every person will experience judgment from God based on their deeds. The religious Jewish person, the moral religious person, though people may be impressed with their life, God sees the heart. The pagan or the religious will all get exactly what they deserve. Why? Because with God, there is no partiality. Literally, this means to receive face. God does not receive anyone's face. He is not influenced by who the person is who stands before him to be judged. Why do you think that in, Roman and Greek, in the Roman and Greek world, justice is pictured as a woman who's blindfolded? So she could not see the person she is judging, only seeking the facts. God's judgment of people will not be swayed by what church they were confirmed in, or the color of their skin, or the class of society they are a part of. Whether a religious person under the umbrella of Christianity, wealthy or poor, a troubled life or an easy life, the criteria for judgment is your works. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Even though for centuries the Gentiles of this world did not have the scriptures, they still sinned and God will judge them based on the light they had. The Jewish people were blessed with the scriptures and still sinned, and God will judge them by the light of his word. Whether a person lives in a remote village without knowledge of the Bible, or they grow up taught the truths revealed in scripture, God holds them both responsible for what they knew, and their judgment will be in proportion to their knowledge. In Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, and Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, scripture teaches there are degrees of punishment. No one will have an excuse. All will be judged. But those who had more light will have a greater degree of punishment. For all of us studying this book, 
That is the mind of God. Should we fail to embrace the message of salvation so clearly taught by faith alone in Christ, then we are in a dangerous place. Refusal to come to Christ the way he has told us to come when we have heard the truth will result in a more severe eternal punishment. Why? Verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Sadly, the religious Jew that Paul was speaking to thought they were exempt from judgment because they had the law. The Gentiles didn't. But Paul has destroyed this argument because no one could keep the law. No one has loved God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength, or their neighbor as themselves. That is just one command from the law. Every person is responsible to live up to the light they have been given. Those with more light are condemned before God, not justified by their attempts to keep the law. Verse 14 and 15, and what about all the people who do not have the written law of God? The truth is, God has made it possible for every person to have a sense of right and wrong. This is why you meet some unbelievers with a loving marriage or other great qualities because in their hearts they know what is right and what is wrong. They know it is wrong to ignore the cries of the poor. They believe people should be honest and have integrity. They have a moral code they live by. Maybe it is because of parents or grandparents who taught them right from wrong. But whether a person obeys the written law of God in the Bible or their own conscience drives them to do good, both violate and fail their own moral code and their own conscience. This is why people feel guilty. This is the point of Paul's argument. Judgment from God will come to all people based on their deeds. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So even if you think you have lived a generous, kind, giving life, and people have been blessed by your good deeds, you will still stand before God one day, and he will examine the motives of your heart. He will judge the deeds no one saw in your thoughts and mind. All the words you thought but didn't say, all the secret matters will become public and people will be silenced. Judgment is the future for all who think they will be accepted by God in heaven because they have lived a good life. No one can be right with God because of their attempts to keep God's law or follow their conscience, faulty as it can be. God has made a better way, the only way, forgiveness of our sins through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Call upon him today. Confess your sins to him and trust his death was the payment for your sins. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The next section of verses 17 through 29, we see the false religious confidence. The Jewish audience that Paul was trying to convince of their spiritual need had a faulty confidence when thinking about how one gets to heaven. So Paul takes this next section to shake up their faulty self-confidence, trying to get them to see their only confidence must be in Christ alone. 
In verses 17 and 18, we see that the Jewish people had the law of Moses. Those who are physical descendants of Abraham are the Jewish people. These are the covenant people of God. They were proud and their unique relation, with their unique relationship to God. They had been born, set apart from the pagan world by God. He relied upon the law and he boasted in God. Verse 18 goes on to say that they knew of the things God approved of, having instruction from the law. They had been instructed in the scriptures. They were taught by rabbis. They went to the synagogue. This was their way of life. Not unlike people today who are proud to tell others they belong to a particular denomination they would see as superior. They can also claim to know much of the Bible, having been in religious school all of their lives. But both the religious Jew of Paul's day and the religious professor of Christianity have the same problem. It is called pride. They believe they are superior to others. Such a mindset brought about another false confidence. In verses 19 through 23, we see the Jewish people's attitude toward the Gentiles. Having an attitude of being superior caused confusion in their roles. Verse 19, they were a guide to the blind. With all of their knowledge of God's law, they thought they were reliable to guide the Gentiles who were clueless about the law. It is true that they were to be light to the world. But when pride creeps in, it is followed by wrong thinking about self. This is like the religious moral people of our day who trust in their religious association instead of seeing their sin and the need for personal salvation from Christ. Paul says in verse 21, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? The age-old problem of not practicing what you tell others to do. Paul gets specific when he asks, do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do you claim to abhor idols? Yet you are guilty of all these transgressions. Stealing in business, having extramarital affairs with those who aren't, weren't a part of their religion, or freely divorcing multiple wives to legalize adultery, robbing temples, perhaps of the pagan gods, apparently some were guilty of such offenses. So when we compare what the pagan man is guilty of to that of the religious Jew of Paul's day, we see that both had sexual sins, both hurt fellow man by stealing from them. One can have a greater knowledge of the right thing to do, but failing to do what is right has the same outcome as those who couldn't read about such behavior as being wrong. Verse 23, you dishonor God. And even worse, in verse 24, the impact of those who know the truth and still dishonor God actually causes God's name to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. So instead of Gentiles being able to be blessed by seeing the law of God obeyed, they instead saw hypocrisy. We all know people who want nothing to do with God or his word because of a particular individual or church that has misrepresented truth with hypocrisy. In your life, marriage, finances, treatment of spouse, treatment of fellow workers, if your life is not different from people in this culture, why would they be interested in the God of a hypocrite? 
We have seen that the religious Jew of Paul's day believed they were spiritually saved because they had a relationship to the law of Moses, and they failed to be a light to the Gentiles. However, the other critical thing they placed their confidence in was their being circumcised. Paul is trying to prove that a Jewish religious person and pagan people have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verses 25 to 29, we have the rite of circumcision. This was commanded by God to Abraham and his descendants back in Genesis. It was a symbol of obedience, the physical cutting away that pictured God wanting his followers to cut away sin from their life. Exodus 6 verse 12 speaks of uncircumcised lips. Jeremiah 6 19, the same with ears. And in countless places, God speaks of uncircumcised heart. God was calling the nation of Israel to cut off sin from their life and live a life dedicated to God. It is from the male organ that man passes on the sin nature to his children. God wanted a continual reminder to his covenant people, and so he commanded circumcision to remind them that God wanted obedience. It becomes obvious that Paul is making the point, you can have this surgery on the body, and the heart can be unchanged. So there can be outward conformity without personal obedience. The symbol is meaningless if those who are circumcised don't care about living obediently from the heart. Many people today have this type of attitude about their religion. They were baptized, they've taken communion, and therefore feel pretty good about their standing with God. All of these are proper to do, but they are only symbols to reflect the change that has taken place in a person's heart. Rituals and ceremonies don't make a person righteous, nor did circumcision make a Jewish person righteous. Paul concludes his argument in verses 28 and 29, explaining to his Jewish audience, only having an outward sign without an inward faith evidenced by obedience means nothing. A true Jew has had surgery on his heart. Paul isn't saying every believer in Jesus is a Jew, but rather every true Jew should have an inward reality, otherwise they are just like the Gentiles around them. The important question is, who is a true Christian? Someone who has trusted in Christ for salvation, who has a changed heart. Religious rites have no power to save, just as circumcision has no power to save a Jewish person. person. Symbols don't save people. Faith alone in Christ alone, who is pictured in these symbols, he alone can change our hearts. I hope you will examine your own heart. You may be a kind, wonderful human being who lives your life on a high moral plane who comp- when compared to most people. And yet that goodness doesn't put you in right standing with a holy God. Anything we do that is not for his glory and through his power is still unacceptable to God. That is why we desperately need the righteousness of Christ to be given to us. This is the only way to be acceptable to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and these wonderful truths that we've studied this week. Lord, please help each of us to search our hearts and to see where we truly stand before you, our righteous judge. 
thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.